We've been going through the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, we've seen that God is was preparing uh, His people uh, for the coming of His King and His, and His kingdom. We saw a few weeks ago that God gave these incredible promises to David that there would never be one, uh, there will always be one from, uh, from his line to sit on God's throne. That this forever ruler would come from David's line who would establish God's forever kingdom. One of the things that we talked about is seeing how from those, that when God gave those promises to David moving forward, God's Old Testament church is consistently looking back and hoping in those promises and awaiting and anticipating the coming of the promised one who would rule and reign forever. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at one of those prophecies in the book of Isaiah. It was pointing God's people to the fulfillment of these promises when God would bring this ultimate promised one that he gave these promises to David, who he's about. Uh, this was in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to turn over there, it's on page 573 if you're in one of the black Bibles. Listen to what Isaiah says. He's pointing God's people forward to the coming of this one. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Here Isaiah is pointing God's people back to the promise that God made to David and forward anticipating the coming of this promised one. Over the next four weeks, we're going to take a break from 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, We're going to use uh, these four names that are given here of the promised one who is coming. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We want to look at at those names and see what do they tell us and reveal to us about Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of these promises. Uh, We'll take each of those a week at a time um, and looking at a New Testament passage that helps to... uh, explain more fully for us how Jesus is the fulfillment of each of these names of this child who would be born. This morning we're going to start by looking at Wonderful Counselor. It's interesting that that term wonderful is used in the Old Testament to describe acts and works that only God can do. His wonderful deeds on behalf of his people, his mighty actions in space and time and history. Calling him wonderful shows us that he's he's distinct from humanity. This is is a divine one who is coming. He's a a, a wonderful, a, a divine counselor, one who is full of wisdom, 
who, unlike the kings of the past who needed to surround themselves with counselors, this one is in some way full of the wisdom, the divine wisdom of God. What does this tell and show us about Jesus, the coming king? So we want to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to use First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 to help us understand more fully how Jesus is this wonderful counselor, this one who is full of and is the divine wisdom for us. So if you want to flip over into the New Testament, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 31. Uh, this is on page 952, if you're following along in one of the Black Bibles. Uh, and what we'll see is that as Paul, who's writing this letter to the, the church in Corinth, uh, one of God's authorized spokespersons, he's communicating and talking to God's people about this divine wisdom, this wonderful counselor, and the implications it will have for the world, for ourselves, and for our God. So, if you would, look with me as we hear from the Word of God this morning, beginning there in verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus." who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that You would open up our eyes this morning, that You would give us understanding. You give us your wisdom to see Christ, to understand your word, 
to understand and know who we are. May you direct our hearts and our minds to boast only in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what we want to do is we look at this uh, passage this morning. And kids, if you're keeping uh, track of your words this morning, uh, we want to see how the coming of this wonderful counselor, what does it reveal to us about the world? So your first word is world. What does it reveal to you about yourself? So the second word would be yourself. And thirdly, what does it reveal to us about our God? So the third word would be God. So first let's look and see what does the coming of this wonderful counselor reveal to us about the world? Remember, in describing Jesus as the wonderful counselor, being that he is the wonderful one, that, 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 and that word describes us as something that is, is only uh, and, and uniquely associated with God, that means there's something distinct about him from the world. And in fact, that's apparent in what Paul is teaching and telling us here, because uh, although the Scriptures describe Jesus as the wonderful counselor, the world's perspective, that he's not wonderful at all. In fact, he's a foolish counselor. Look at what it says in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the powerful, it is the power of God. He's, he's not a wonderful counselor. The wisdom, the ways, the purposes of this God are complete and utter foolishness. I mean, let's just, let's look at the way that this wonderful one came into the world. I mean, we don't need to look any further than, than that to see how, how foolish and unwise this God is. A baby? You would enter into the world as, as a baby? Into a, a poor family? A scandalized family? One that was already associated with, with shame because he came to a, an unwed mother? I mean, let's, let's think about when you thought of announcing and proclaiming your entrance into the world, you chose some shepherds? A few guys who are used to hanging out with the sheep to proclaim and announce your entrance into the world? You wasted the most beautiful heavenly choir on some smelly wool watchers. Then when you start calling your followers to follow you, these uneducated fishermen, these rejects from the culture around you. And then the cross. I thought you were supposed to be victorious. The conquering king. Yet you come and you die the most shameful death possible at that time. Crucified Christ is, is a contradiction of terms. What good is a dead Savior? I mean, at least you could have decided to come now. We have smartphones, the internet, 
Do you know how many more people could have known about who you are and what you were doing if you would have waited until technology was at the point it is now? A middle schooler can do something on a soccer field in Elizabeth City and by lunchtime, it's known around the world. Yet, you came before the radio was even invented. What kind of wisdom does that demonstrate and show? Wonderful counselor. I, I, don't, I don't think so, our world would say. Or to, even at, at that time, to think about uh, the idea of Jesus dying on the cross, uh, folks who are commenting on the good news and the message of the gospel of what Christians were proclaiming about this wonderful counselor coming and suffering and died to redeem and save sinners. They described it in this way. A perverse, extravagant superstition that they would worship and follow one who suffered and died on the shameful cross. Uh, They found graffiti in the Roman Empire uh, of people mocking followers of Jesus. There's this one guy, Alex Zemanos, is who the, the guy they were making fun of. And they drew a picture of, of uh, we'll call him Alexander, worshiping his God. You know what they drew a picture of? They drew a picture of a cross, and on that cross was a man's lower half, and the upper half was a donkey. Because of how foolish they thought they were to follow a crucified Savior and King. It doesn't make sense to the world. And then when you begin to factor in the, the idea of, of following the wisdom of this wonderful counselor, his guidance, his direction, do you want to gain your life? Lose it. Do you want to lose your life? Then, then try to save it for yourself. Love your enemies. When those sin against you, I want you to forgive them. Look at the laws He gives you. How restrictive His commands are for you. Do you know what you're missing out on by following these foolish regulations from your God? It doesn't make sense. We can't do what we want with our bodies, with our stuff, with our money, with our time. No, thank you. I don't want to follow this God. The ways of our God are foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense. Recently finished reading a biography about Eric Little, who was a a runner in Scotland uh, back in the 20s. The 1920s. I guess I have to clarify that now. Um, And... Uh, Eric was known as being a follower of of Jesus. And because of Jesus' commands and the teaching of Scripture about the the Lord's Day being a day of rest, he wouldn't run and compete in these competitions on the Lord's Day. And so, when it came time to run in the Olympics, one of his qualifying races was going to be on Sunday. And so Eric didn't run. And his countrymen ridiculed him that he was foolish for passing up such an opportunity. Why would you follow this outdated regulation? 
little was thinking of honoring his God and the wisdom of Christ, not the wisdom of the world. He ended up running in another race that he wasn't even training for, and he won gold medal. And then he did something even dumber from the world's perspective. Instead of capitalizing on this fame to get more money, to train better, to go back and win another Olympics, which would make him even more world-renowned, he went to China as a missionary. And he died in a Japanese internment camp. His last race, he ran against other enslaved people with a brain tumor. What a waste! What a loss! If you're thinking with the wisdom of the world... But when you know the value of our God and His purposes, it makes all the sense in the world. But our world can't understand the ways and the purposes of our mighty God, our wonderful Counselor. Look, uh, Paul even tells us that here, that God is, is in fact judging the world and its wisdom for the way that they think and approach and work and act in His world. Look in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God is saying, come. Come now. Where are you who would challenge me? God is saying, I am going to judge and bring an end to the wisdom of the world as they have rejected me. In fact, one of the ways that we see God's judgment and is bringing an end to the wisdom of the world is through the failure of our world, through their own wisdom, to comprehend and understand and know our God. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God is making their wisdom foolish. In all the discoveries that the world has come to, they have not and cannot come to know God through wisdom. In fact, it's, it's almost as if, and they are, a world uses its own knowledge to, to explain away the existence of our God. Think about all the things that our world has, has been able to accomplish. Even now, just this past week, yet again, we've been able to shoot a rocket up into the air from Florida, send it, it's going around the moon... The, this rocket went the furthest any human capable of carrying humanity further away from the earth as possible. It's going to come back. Soon they're going to develop a rocket that can take off from earth, land on the moon, take off from the moon again, and land back on the earth again. Yet guess what? Humanity can accomplish all of that, but can't look at the greatest piece of artwork in the world. The greatest invention ever, and come to the conclusion that someone made and created this. They look at the world and, and exchange the creator for a creature. We can't answer 
the most basic things about our existence. Our world, even though it has all this wisdom and understanding, doesn't know and can't answer what is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What about this? What is the purpose of life? We're lost in our wisdom if we think that we have the knowledge and the capacity and the understanding to be able to come to know our God. But our God is judging us, giving us over to the futility of our minds, Paul says in Romans, darkening our thinking. You want to rest and rely on your own wisdom and reject what I have said, that I am the Creator? that you do not have the strength and ability and the capacity within yourself to redeem and save yourself? You want to reject my proclamation that I am ruler and God and king and the only way you can be saved is through abandoning yourself and trusting and hoping in me? Sounds foolish to the world. Paul says here, if we continue to abandon and reject our wonderful Counselor, and His wisdom, what is the result? The result, it tells us in verse 18, is to perish. To eternally perish, separated from our God, but to rest and hope and follow the wisdom of our wonderful Counselor results in salvation. Results in deliverance. Results in peace. That means, as we... Think about the ways of our wonderful counselor. Not only do we see a distinction between the world and our wonderful counselor, but we must begin to look at, at ourselves. And Paul says, look at yourself. In light of the wisdom of our God, what does this reveal about you? About me? Look in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul, Paul's saying, in light of the wisdom of this wonderful counselor, you've got to look at yourself. Because he's working and he's operating in ways that the world doesn't understand. And what that means is you've got to look at yourself. Church in Corinth, when God redeemed and saved you, not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful according to the world's standards. Not many of you were of noble birth according to the world's standards. So why did He choose you? God doesn't operate the same way the world does. If the world was picking, they would pick like I pick a kickball team. I would have loved in elementary school to have been chosen as the captain and for God to be the captain of the other team. Because I would have gotten all the best players. God would have started at the end, choosing all the kids that I wouldn't want on my team. 
Because I'm thinking about things from the way of the world. How do I evaluate who has worth and value? The way the world thinks. But God doesn't think like that. Did you see in this passage who God chooses? That comes up over and over. Look in verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God does not operate and choose based on the way the world thinks. He prioritizes different things. He looks at people from a different perspective. Have we not already seen that? How did even the great Samuel think who was going to be chosen as king? He's got kickball thinking like me. God chose the last, the least. That needs for us to consider ourselves. Look at yourself. Maybe if you're here this morning, you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Consider yourself a Christian. If you think a lot of this talk is, is, is foolishness, this passage would cause you to question and to begin to think, what are you prioritizing? Because if you are making your priorities according to the wisdom of the world, instead of prioritizing your life, and your values according to the priorities of our God, then you're going to be sadly mistaken. Is your priority seeking knowledge? Is it seeking status? Is it seeking power and influence and material goods? And to be accepted and proclaimed and celebrated by men? If so, you need to hear what this passage is saying. You need to hear and understand the wisdom of our wonderful counselor, which sounds foolish. God doesn't prioritize those things. And if you think that by pursuing those, you will come and, and experience significance and a fullness of life, or if you think by pursuing and, and achieving those things that God will then maybe be more pleased with you and you will be accepted through your worth and your value and what you have accomplished, Paul says you're wrong. The wonderful counselor doesn't operate that way. In fact, Jesus says he came to seek the sick, the poor, the outsider. If you're in a place to where you're like, why would I want to admit and acknowledge that I'm weak, that I can't do it? Our culture values self-sufficiency, independence, not relying on anyone else. But Jesus says, if that is your perspective as you approach the kingdom of God, that I need to be in a place of where I don't need God, that I can do it myself, then Jesus' words are, I did not come for you. I did not die for you. The well... Don't need a doctor. It's only the sick. If you're thinking with the wisdom of the world, then you don't recognize and realize 
how in desperate need you are. But the wisdom of our wonderful counselor says, because it took the eternal God to take on flesh, to die, to redeem and save us, we couldn't do it. Others of us need to remember, if you are considering yourself and you would call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that God's choice had nothing to do with how good you are or what you've accomplished. God didn't look at you and say, you know what? I really need them because without their skills and accomplishment and merit, I will not be able to work and do what I need. No, God looks at you and sees you in your death and your weakness and your struggles. And he puts his love upon you because of his grace and his mercy. Notice what it says here. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The wisdom of our wonderful counselor says, you have nothing to boast of except the love and free grace and mercy of our God. There's others of us, though, who need to hear the good news of this message because the way of our wonderful counselor is completely contrary to the ways of our world. That means there's hope. There's hope for you who don't measure up to what our world values. You're an outsider. You're in the wrong socioeconomic class. You don't have the right education or uh, the, 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 the number in your bank account. You've been rejected by a certain group of people. You don't have a family. You don't have a home. Would God ever consider pursuing and saving and redeeming someone like you? Is there a place for you in the kingdom? Because the world says so many times, I don't have value or worth in this culture because of what I lack. Our God says, it's not what you have. God pursues and saves the poor, the weary, the outcast. You are the very kind of people God is seeking That means that for us as the church, maybe we need to begin to reorient and think about how we approach evangelism and kingdom building. Because all too often, we we want to out-counsel the wonderful counselor and think, you know what, the best way to build the kingdom is we'll pursue all of the elite and those with status and influence in the culture. And then we'll see them come to know Jesus, and then they will be the ones who then change everything and bring about the kingdom of, of God. Did we ever see God work like that? No. No. He, he preserves the, the poor and broken. God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised. Does God save and redeem anyone? Yeah. Your riches don't disqualify you. Just like it isn't your poverty that merits you access to our God. 
But there's something about the heart of God and His wisdom demonstrated through the way that He builds His kingdom through those who have nothing that reflects something to us. Maybe as we begin to think about it as, as, as God's people, uh, as our, our, minis- our mercy ministry team gets up and going, this Pat and those guys begin to develop ways and means for us as a congregation to engage with those who are materially poor in our culture, that we as a congregation will step up and begin to engage in those types of ministries more and more, because in doing that, we will reflect the heart and the wisdom of our God. In fact, this is the way the early church was characterized. Listen to what this guy This uh, is a guy named Celsus. He wrote about a hundred years after Paul wrote this letter to the, the church in Corinth. Here he is writing about the Christian church. The following rules are laid down by them. Let no one come to us who's been instructed or who's wise or prudent, for such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there be any ignorant or unintelligent, unintelligent, or uninstructed, or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. By which words, acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to convince only the silly and the dishonorable and the stupid and only slaves and women and children. The early church was characterized by those that the world rejected. What would it look like if we began to demonstrate something that's completely countercultural in the way that we do ministry and reflect our calling and our purpose in the world and engaging those that we see in Scripture? Our wonderful counselor came and pursued and engaged with. What this means is that we're going to need to turn from ourselves and turn our direction and our thinking and our hearts to our God, to our wonderful counselor. Look, that's where Paul directs us. Look in verse 30. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice in verse 30. It's because of Him that you're in Christ. It's all His work. You and I, we've done nothing. It's what our wonderful Counselor has done to redeem and save us. In fact, really what what Paul is saying, it actually directs us back to what we heard David say. Remember what David said when God communicated these great promises to him? David goes, Who am I that you would choose me? What? What we begin to see here is that our attitude and our response should be to think, man, God was a fool to choose and redeem me. Did he have any clue how messed up I am? How hard my heart was? How much I'm going to struggle? How much dishonor I bring to his kingdom and his name? But our God didn't work and doesn't act with the wisdom of the world. He works with the wisdom of the wonderful Counselor who entered into our world to be and do what we couldn't. Notice what it says about Jesus. 
Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. He is now your representative. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The righteousness I have and that you have if you're trusting in Jesus is not your own. It's come from your wonderful Counselor who has lived perfectly for you. The redemption and the sanctification that you have is because He has set you apart and He has worked to redeem and save and do what you could not for yourself. Who is, who is this God? Who would save someone who is as poor and weak and undeserving as me? What a gracious God. How good of news is it that He is one who acts and works with the wisdom of our divine and gracious God and not the wisdom of the world? Because if He chose and selected according to the wisdom of the world, there would be no hope for me. And there would be no hope for you. And that's why He works the way that He does, because it tells us in verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the wisdom of the wonderful counselor is through his work, his suffering, his life, his death on the cross for us, it shows us our only hope is in him. All glory and praise be to him. He's the one who chose, he's the one who acted. It's only because of him that I have been saved and you have been saved. Thanks be to our God. This wonderful counselor has come to redeem and save his people. Not with the wisdom of the world, but with the foolishness of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the good news of the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to seek and save sinners. We thank you for your work on our behalf. It's because of you that we have been saved. We pray that you would continue to shape our minds and our hearts, that we would operate with the wisdom of our God and not the wisdom of the world. In Christ's name, amen.